Well, this past January, we learned about one of the worst cases of parental neglect. There you go. That too. One of the worst cases, I've got to be careful now, of parental neglect and abuse ever, where a young girl escaped cap- captivity in her home and went to police in the city of Paris, California. And she reported that her parents had been keeping her and her 12 siblings in captivity. By, the, by her size, the police thought she was about 10 years old. And she was 17. They promptly went to the house in question. Inside, they found the remaining 12 siblings shackled to their beds. Their parents, David and Louise Turpin, were arrested, and they now face 94 years to life. Severe malnourishment and muscle decay had stunted the growth of the children. The police thought they all were children, but several of them were actually adults. The oldest child was 29 years old, but she weighed only 82 pounds. And the 12-year-old had the weight of a 7-year-old. It's not like the parents were starving, though. They were well-fed. The father made decent money. He could have taken care of them. But they kept the refrigerator locked and basically fed their children the bare minimum to survive. And sadly, this is not the first time something like this has happened. But such cases really plumb the depths of man's depravity. What do you think of such parents? I'm sure you would agree no punishment is too great for them. They've socially murdered their children. They've stolen their youths and prevented them from ever living a normal life. You would be right to be disgusted by them. Few crimes are so vile as the the neglect and abuse of children. Now that being said, what do you think of parents who spiritually neglect and abandon their children? This is not a crime to us, but what do you think God thinks about parents who neglect and abandon their children, spiritually speaking? What if I told you a story about parents who were spiritually rich. They know all about God and Christ. They follow Jesus as Lord and and Savior. They're on the path of salvation. They know rich doctrine and and theology. But they never share any of this with their children. They spiritually starve their children. They never impart God's truth to them. You see, we are repulsed by parents who neglect their children such that they physically handicap them. But don't you think God is also repulsed by parents who spiritually neglect their children so as to spiritually handicap them? We're outraged by stories of physical abandonment, rightly so, that is pure evil. But God is similarly outraged by by stories of spiritual abandonment. And the point is, the spiritual dimension of your parenting is just as important to God. Of course, we have a mandate to physically care for our children, their own flesh. We want the best for them. But the godly parent wants above all what's best for them in the next life as well. And so they will go to great lengths to spiritually feed their children. We believe eternity matters, that that being reconciled to God in Christ is the most important thing. And so how could you possibly neglect to invite your children to this feast? You can't make them sit down and eat. But are you at least setting the food before them? Or are you just leaving them breadcrumbs? Is the only spiritual meal your children get at church during Sunday school? It shouldn't be that way. 
We have a call not to spiritually neglect our children, but to to feed them, to invest in them. This is a a message we need to hear. We need to be reminded both individually as parents and as a local church how we can uh, rise up to the call to spiritually feed our children. It's a message which comes to us this morning from Psalm 78. And so you can turn there now in your Bibles for this morning, Psalm 78. Like Oliver is mentioning, it started off unplanned, but this week has kind of turned into this this parenting theme week at church. On Sunday nights, Oliver is teaching about the intersection of, of parenting and biblical counseling. We just taught on the men's breakfast about how to instruct your children. And on Wednesday nights, doing like a, a biblical parenting crash course. And so I figured, ah, why not just pile it on and, and continue with the Sunday morning sermon. We're in Psalms for a little bit. We're about to start the epistle of James pretty soon. But I figured I'd include one more, this time Psalm 78, which is about the the closest you'll get to a parenting psalm. In fact, Psalm 78 cuts right to the core of the mission of biblical parenting. It contains a message we all need to hear. A little bit of background. Do you know which is the longest psalm? Psalm 119. Now, can you guess which is the second longest psalm? You probably put that together. It's Psalm 78. It's also one of five psalms that recounts Israel's history, but it's it's much more than that. The inscription at the top reads a masculine of Asaph. Asaph, if you remember, he's basically King David's worship leader. David commissioned him to lead Israel in psalms of praise, and over time Asaph penned Psalms 73 through 83 as well as Psalm 50. Well, what's this masquille, though? Well, most scholars believe that a masquille is a teaching psalm. The psalms were written and intended to lead the people in song. Some of them also function, though, as teaching tools, ways to instruct God's word about some truth in a poetic fashion. And Psalm 78 definitely functions as a teaching psalm. Asaph has a clear message for the people here. And so what does Psalm 78 do? teach. Well, on the surface, Psalm 78 traces the history of Israel from the Exodus to the wilderness, to the conquest, all the way to the the time of King David. But again, it's so much more than a history lesson. Asaph draws out vital spiritual truths in Israel's holy history. Israel's redemptive history comes with a message. So here's what I want to do with this psalm. It's kind of kind of feel like two sermons crammed into one, but I first want to just go through Psalm 78, not every single verse, but a solid flyby, just so you understand what is the message, what what's the the main message Asaph is is trying to communicate to the people in this psalm, and then we're gonna come back around and see how pertinent this message is for today, specifically as it applies to parenting. I mean, here we are, we're like 3,000 years later, but we still find such a relevant lesson on parenting for today. It's just the timeless nature of God's word. And so we'll see how this comes together. Just to begin, we're going to start just by surveying Psalm 78. What is Asaph's message, his central thrust in this psalm to the people? Let's find out. Start at verse 1. Psalm 78, verse 1. He says, listen, O my people, 
to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Psalm 78 starts off, Asaph has a message for God's people. He's got something to say. He phrases it in a peculiar way. He calls it a parable, even a dark saying of old, where it speaks of something that's like a riddle, a perplexing statement. There's a lesson in Israel's history that's hidden from the foolish, but revealed to the wise and the discerning, as we'll see. At the same time, though, this message is nothing new. It's been passed down. They've heard it before. Verse 4, it's the message of of God, his person and his works as revealed in Israel's history. Asaph is going to share for us just who God is and what he's done as seen in Israel's history. Now, you might be thinking, though, okay, what's so perplexing about that? Well, the riddle comes in how a holy God can love and forgive Israel over and over and over again. If you know anything about Israel's history, they were this chosen people, God's nation, right? But most of the time, they were unbelieving. They didn't follow this God. They were just as wicked and rebellious as all the pagan nations around them. And so how could God keep loving them? How could he keep them around? Why didn't he just wipe them off the face of the earth and and pick a different nation a long time ago? This is the the riddle of Israel's history. For example, look down at verse 10. He says of Israel, They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. Asaph goes on to talk about the parting of the Red Sea after this. I mean, just talk about a miracle, just picturing the Red Sea part, and you cross on, on dry land. How do you forget that? How do you forget the God who did that for you? Yet, down he says in verse 17 after this, he says, yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. God brought them out of Egypt. He redeemed them from slavery. Yet they still continued to sin and, and rebel against his ways. And in particular, that wilderness generation, what were they known for? Complaining. After all that God had done for them, they had the audacity to doubt God and then just to complain about everything. Now, at this point, you would you'd expect, okay, God, he's got to have enough at this point. He's just going gonna to wipe them out at this point. It's what they deserved, but, verse 24, it says, in response to their complaining, it says, therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and against and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God, and did not trust in his salvation, yet, verse 23, he commanded the clouds above, and opened the doors of heaven, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. You see how perplexing this is? 
the people, they were unbelieving. They were unfaithful. After all that he'd done for them already, they, they deserved judgment. But God showed them mercy. If he had wiped them out, I think we would understand that it's what they deserved. They were wicked rebels. What we don't understand is how God can show them his love again and again, his mercy, mercy his patience, his long-suffering, his, his grace. I mean, after all, they're, they're complaining, he yet still, with another miracle, gives them bread, manna, from heaven. At the very least, now you would think, okay, finally the people are going to you know, get their act together and, and serve God. After all this, okay, now finally they're going to get it right. God has delivered them. He's provided water from a rock, manna from heaven, even meat just from the sky. And now they're going to walk in his ways, right? Verse 32, it says, In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. And this sad refrain is repeated four times actually in this psalm, that they still sinned. They did not regard God in their hearts. They continued to go their own way and realize God, he is patient and loving and gracious with them. But he will not be mocked. And so moments of wrath came upon Israel where he disciplined them in his anger. He didn't wipe them out, but he sure took some people out. The next verse, verse 33, it says, So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. When he killed them, then they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God there. Redeemer. Eventually, the hammer of God's wrath fell upon the wilderness generation. They were an unbelieving generation. And so, in the end, they all fell in the wilderness. They never entered the promised land. But the next generation, they did. They, they turned to God. They remembered God. They, they honored his works and, and his, his character. That they trusted him. He was their rock, their deliverer. And things went well for a little while. But a little while after that, what do you what do you think happened? Verse 36, the, the cycle just repeats. Verse 36, it says, But they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus, he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. And really, this pattern would continue for the next 400 years. All throughout the period of the judges, over and over, Israel would prove unfaithful to God and his covenant. They would forget all of his mighty works and his gracious character They would not consider him and and they would abandon his ways. And in turn, God would at times discipline the nation, but he never abandoned them. He forgave their iniquity. He did not destroy them in his anger or or, or forsake them utterly. And again, this is is the riddle. How can this be? Well, the discerning can understand the the, the point that Asaph is, is trying to make here, the message he's getting across and it really has to do with the marvel of God's grace. It's the marvel of a gracious 
God. Israel's God is a God of grace. His is an unconditional love. God sovereignly elected Israel. He chose to set his special love on them as his chosen nation. And and nothing could change that. They weren't smarter or or faster or bigger, better. They certainly weren't holier. There's nothing special about them. God simply chose them to make them his own, to give them a special place that all the nations would come to know God's name. And he was going to work out his purposes through this nation, even if they were wayward. And in all, though, this is the marvel. It's perplexing that this God, he's not like us. If it were us, we would have rid ourselves of Israel a long time ago. But although they abandoned God's covenant, God did not. They were unfaithful, but God remained faithful, for he cannot deny himself or his, his word. And so do you see that the marvel of, of God's grace in Israel's history over and over again? And he's still not finished with them. And so you see in Psalm 78, you keep reading it, it's not just a history lesson. This is a teaching psalm. And Asaph, is, he's tying together this message here from their history. It starts off with God's grace, that God is a gracious God. And he made an unconditional covenant with Israel to bless them, to choose them, to set his love on them. But his grace is not abused for any generation or tribe or family to participate in his covenant blessings, to to inherit the blessings. They must believe. They must follow him and seek his ways. Otherwise, it's true, God will never ultimately forsake Israel as a nation, but he will cut off the wicked generation. He will cut off the wicked generation. And so we we can see now coming to focus Asaph's message for the people of his time, the time of David. It was a time of peace and blessing once again after 400 years of continual apostasy and rebellion and judgment upon Israel for their waywardness. The time of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Finally, God had set a king over them, a godly king, David, to shepherd them, to lead them in God's ways. This is how Psalm 78 ends, by the way, a note of hope about David, the shepherd king. However, Asaph knows That if the people, and really if their children, fail to follow God and his shepherd, if they turn their hearts away from him again, it's all going to happen over again. That, That they too will be cut off just as quickly as the wilderness generation. And so you can tell now what he's trying to say is basically don't repeat the mistakes of the past. This is Asaph's message. You can almost hear the the desperation in his voice, his call to his people and their children. Don't forget. This is why they needed to remember Israel's holy history. Don't forget what happened in the past. Don't forget God. Don't forget who he is or, or what he did for you, how he redeemed you. And don't abandon his ways. Continue to seek him. Remember his person and his works. Worship him with reverence, lest the next generation be cut off as well. The amazing truth is, 
that God will never forsake Israel in his ultimate plan for the nations. But that doesn't mean that the next generation won't be like the generation of the wilderness. They will be cut off if they're wicked. And it just takes one unfaithful generation to take God's people off course. And Asaph desperately doesn't want to see that happen again. Things are good right now, but he's looking at the next generation. He knows how quickly things can turn. And he's pleading with the people, just just seek God. Remember him. Don't forget. He's your rock. He's your redeemer. You be faithful to his covenant and, and it will go well with you. Now, this is the essence of Asaph's desperate plea in, in Psalm 78. Now, I trust, I hope that makes sense. It, it's coming into focus now. Now, that being said, you might be wondering, okay, but what does this have to do with parenting? Well, travel back to the beginning, verses 5 through 8. It's the heart of this psalm, verses 5 through 8. And, and once you understand what Asaph is trying to say to the people, you realize that his message has everything to do with parenting. Psalm 78 is really directed at parents because who was, in a way, largely responsible for the waywardness of ancient Israel? It was the previous generation, the parents. That God himself had tasked parents with the mission of passing on his truth and his redemption to the next generation, And parents are called to teach their children about God, his person, his works, his word. That they may not forsake him, but turn to him. But the previous generation of parents that had failed in this mission, and it's it's no wonder, therefore, that their children turned away. And so in Psalm 78, Asaph, he's basically crying out and saying, may this never happen today. May, May this not happen to our children May we not make the same mistake and fail to instruct our children in the Lord. And in that regard, this most certainly applies to us today. Look, we're not Israel. We're not under the old covenant. We are the church. We're under the new covenant. But God has given parents in the church the same mandate over their children. Ephesians 6.4, for example. Parents, raise up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We have the same mission, to be faithful, to bring up our kids, showing them God and his ways. We can't make them follow God, but we can and we must show them God and his ways. Our children, they're going to learn all about the way of the world from the culture around them. Try as you might, it's just everywhere. It seeps through the the cracks in your windows and under your door. It's it's, It's everywhere. It's a pervasive culture we live in. And they will get a a godless worldview from the world. That's all they'll get. But who's going to show them God? Who's going to show them that there's another way, actually? It's the way of the Lord, and and it's good that the way of the world is actually cursed and leads to death. But the way of the Lord is is blessed and leads to life. Who will show them? You, their parents. This is your mission. And this is the heart. Of, of Psalm 78, the mission, it, it certainly applies to us today, that we too would, would heed this charge. I'm sure I don't have to convince you that, that the next generation in America, they're only more and more turning away from God, right? 
no, no, no need for convincing there. We may not be able to stop that tide, but we can say, well, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is that, is that your desire? I trust it is. Well, then you want to heed this message. You want to listen up to Asaph's message. And so that was all pretty much introduction. Like I told you, it's going to feel kind of like two, two sermons in one. But you, you have to first understand the, the thrust of what he's trying to tell the people. Now, though, with, with the remaining time we have, now I want us to go back to verses 5 through 8, the, the heart of the psalm, and see how they instruct our parenting mission today. Here, Asaph charges the parents of Israel, and he provides them with, with the essential pillars of the parenting task. And from this, we find instruction, too, because these, are, these still are the same essential pillars of, of our parenting task. And so let's, let's look at these, these pillars of parenting, if you will, so that you, too, may be faithful to raise up your children in, in the way of the Lord. So let's start with this. That number one, it's the pillar of the word. The pillar of the word from verse 5. Remember, Asaph has a message. It's of God and his grace, which, verse 4, we cannot conceal from the next generation. And then he says this. Look at verse 5. He says of God, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. For, verse 5 says, God established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel. That's just Hebrew parallelism 101. It's saying this, the same thing two times, basically. And the point is, God has given his word to his people, and he intends for them to know it and use it. God's word is to be a pillar for, for all life, not just parenting. But God left behind his words of life so that we and our children may come to know him. You know, over in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul describes these words, God's words, as, as the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation by faith in Christ. And then he said right after that, that all scripture is, is what? It's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. See, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word. Do you believe that? Well, then you're, you would understand your parenting task is hamstrung without, without the word. What can you possibly hope to accomplish as a, a biblical parent without God's word involved? If you want to raise your child to be a painter, use a paintbrush. Or a writer, use a pen. An athlete, Use a football, a musician, use a piano. But if you want to train and raise them to know God, to follow God, to, to see God's ways, well, use God's word. Remember, he's placed his power in his word to change lives, so accept no substitutes. Of course, scripture must be a pillar in your own life where you first are, are longing after the pure milk of God's word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. 1 Peter 2, 2. Then and only then can you make 
God's word a pillar in your parenting where we're just God's word just as center stage in your family. It just it's just in the middle. It's, it's, your family revolves around God and his word. But first and foremost, just understand the, the absolute central and an essential uh, essential role God's word must have if you are to raise up your children in the way of the Lord. It's one of the primary reasons he, he left behind this word that we and our children may come to know him. Second, the pillar of instruction. What, what do we do with the word? Well, it's obvious, but nonetheless, the pillar of instruction. Back at verse 5, it says, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children. Next comes this pillar of instruction. Notice the second half of verse 5. Asaph is reminding us that this comes as a command that God commands parents to teach, to instruct their children. That's for Israel and the church. God is outraged when parents spiritually abandon their children. There's a no no child left behind policy in, in the church, spiritually speaking. And notice how this is a perpetual command. In other words, it, it's meant for generation after generation after generation. In fact, in verses 5 and 6, four generations are in view. It's for parents to teach their children that that's two generations. So, verse 6, that, that the third generation, that the children yet to be born, that they would know, and even so that their children would know as well. It's just a, an ongoing, everlasting command. And on it goes. That there's meant to be this never-ending chain of discipleship in the family. You get the same emphasis in Deuteronomy 6. Asaph's words here, I think, harken back to Deuteronomy 6, which was the, the main location where, where God commanded parents to do this, to instruct their children in his word. You've got Moses retelling the law to the, the conquest generation right before they enter the promised land. Remember, the wilderness generation, by now, they're dead and gone. They've, they've fallen in the wilderness because they did not heed God's word. So do you think Moses is, is pleading with them now, this next generation? Like, remember, your fathers blew it, and now it's on you. And they had better listen up. So Moses, he delivers a charge very similar to Asaph. He says, for example, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. He starts and reiterates the greatest command, which is to love God with all your heart. This is the summary of all the law. But then he says this, verse 6 in Deuteronomy 6. He says, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And there it is in, in verse 7. You, you shall teach these words, God's words, to your sons. It's not just for you, it's for your children after you. 
You have to pass it on. And please note, a key word there, diligently. Diligently. It's not a casual task or a once in a while task. It's a perpetual command. Round the clock. He says, when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Translation, like all the time. It's just a way of life that, that God's word is, is before you and, and leading your family. You know, it's great to have a, a family devotion time. Yeah, you come together, you read the Bible, you say to the Bible together however many nights a week, whatever. That, that's good. That's, that's excellent. But God's word should be just saturating your family and your life and all your decisions, all that you do. And accordingly, this 24-7 instruction comes both as verbal instruction, but often as nonverbal instruction. Do you know that you are instructing your children, even your grandchildren, by the way you live? Just by the way you live. Every parent instructs by example. The only question is, are they going to see from you a godly example or a worldly example? Notice in verse 6 of Deuteronomy, it says that before you are able to truly instruct your children in God's word, it says that these words must be where? On your heart. They've got to be on your heart first before you can hope to put them in, in your children's heart. Recognize this is a vital aspect of your instruction to your kids. I mean, can, can you expect your children to, to value prayer when they never see mom and dad praying? Or if they only ever see mom and dad you know, read the Bible as a chore, what do you think it's going to become to them when they get older? But at the same time, if they see from you how you, know, you, you love your enemies, you forgive those who sin against you, you're patient with people, and so on. Well, they're going to learn that as well. They will be impacted. And oftentimes, it's such nonverbal instruction that speaks louder. Either way, you must not abandon this task. You have to understand, your children will be instructed. They will be instructed and brought up. The world will do an excellent job instructing your kids in their ways. It's just going to happen. You cannot avoid it. From school to friends to teachers to their sports team, from TV to, to media to the Internet, they're just going to be full and inundated with the way of the world. They will be well-versed and well-brought up by the world in the way of the world. But the question is, will you show them the way of the Lord and set the contrast before them? That contrast will speak for itself. We can't escape the world. We're not called to. We must be in it, but not of it. But, but this means, all the more as parents, we must show them there's another way. It's the blessed way. And you must use the word of God to diligently instruct your children. And finally, now that the third pillar makes clear the aim of our instruction. Number three, now that the pillar of God from verse 7, the pillar of God. God gave his word that parents might teach their children to what end? Well, verse 7, it says that they, the children, should put their confidence in God. 
and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. The goal of our instruction in our parenting mission is to use the word of God to diligently instruct our children. About what? Well, about God. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about your children. It's about God. He's the center attraction. The Bible is not just a series of of short stories or tall tales or moral lessons. It's the message of God, his person, his works, his attributes, his salvation, all funneled through his son, Christ Jesus. And the goal of our instruction is to show them God, to put on display his supreme glory. They don't need some false and elevated sense of self-worth and self-esteem. I mean, that's really worked wonders for our culture, right? Which has produced the most selfish generation ever. Instead, they need to see themselves before a holy God, a perfect creator. They need a a low view of self, a high view of God, that they would come to, to trust and depend not on themselves, but on this God. To, to deliver them in all things. I'm sure you would agree, in, generally speaking, of course, but you know, the current generation of youths, they live like they are at the center of the universe. Everyone else exists for them. Everyone else just contributes to them and their ego. They're, they're followers. Ours is a self-centered and narcissistic society at its worst. But you need to show your children that, to the contrary, that God is the sun in this solar system. He gives light. He gives life. He shines. He's supremely glorious. And everything else is meant to revolve around him. Only when they see God as supreme and themselves as not will they ever come to make Christ first in their hearts. You can't force that. But it starts with the high view of God. I love how Asaph puts the goal of our instruction in verse 7. The next generation would come to put their confidence in God. Our instruction, it's not just about head knowledge of, of who God is. We're trying to you know, get them all the facts that they learn it all. It's that they might come to, to know him and, and to trust him, to put their confidence in him. This word for confidence refers to your guts, your inward parts. It's the way the Hebrews talked about your inner person. If you've ever seen a sports team demoralized, like like a basketball team, you know, maybe they've got the skill, but they're just being badly beaten, so they give up. And you would say, you know, that their, their heart just isn't in it. Well, the Hebrew would say their gut just isn't in it. The problem with the team is not on the outside, it's their insides. Their their heart isn't in it. And so here in verse 7, he's saying that the goal of our instruction is that that our children would come to know God from the inside. That they would trust in him from their hearts. That they would stake their confidence in him. And he's really talking about nothing other than salvation. Nothing is is more important than this for our children. What's more important to you than the eternal destiny of your child? Does it really matter if they they go to Harvard or become a millionaire or marry the perfect spouse if they perish forever? 
what does it matter? And this is why salvation, it's the ultimate desire of parents and, and children's ministry, of course. And only after this, only after our children come to truly know God, can they then, verse 7, keep his commandments. We know that obeying God is not a root of salvation, it's a fruit of salvation. Living in God's ways is the result of a changed heart that, that happily bows in submission to Christ as Lord. For one has, has tasted and seen the Lord is good. His ways are good. I, I will happily follow him and keep these commands. Now, that's our ultimate desire for our children, to see this transformation come about. But at the same time, though, we also know we can't control this. We can't make this happen. We don't have the power to save them, to make them born again. There's one thing we cannot give to our children, and it's the one thing they need most. It's a new heart. We can't do that for them. That's God's work. But at the same time, we're not accountable for that. Instead, as parents, we are accountable to simply be faithful, to train them up, to set before them the way of the Lord, and to show them God his person, his works, to, to, to impart upon them that the gospel of Christ Jesus, that's our mission. God and his word will convict. That's his job. But you just be faithful, like the farmer, to sow the seed over and over again, remembering that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You be faithful to minister the word of God to their hearts, Remember, we're not just trying to, to change our kids' behavior, that they grow up and be you know, nice, well-mannered, respectable citizens, successful. They look good on the outside. We're trying to reach their hearts with the word implanted. In the previous generation of Israelites, they never had such a heart for God. And so, verse 8, he says in Psalm 78, his desire for the children, he says that they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And again, he brings up the, the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation, a stubborn and a rebellious generation. Despite some outward shows of obedience, they, they never really knew God. They, they never followed God. They never bowed in submission to this God. They never really loved this God from their hearts. Their faith was absent. It was false. They were merely hypocrites. And we don't want to raise a generation of such hypocrites. But it starts with us. You, as parents, must first and foremost love God with all your heart. Much of your instruction is caught, not taught. So just to show your children what it looks like to have a heart that loves God and his son, Christ Jesus, and who follows him. Then, then you use the word of God to diligently instruct your children about God that they too might come to know God and his son. And so you can see now how these three pillars of parenting work together and conspire together. And, and they still capture the essence of, of our parenting mission, that we too are called and commissioned just to be faithful in this task, 
to use the Word of God to diligently instruct our children about God, that they might come to know God and, and His Son. And so you just be faithful in this, that the next generation and beyond may rise up to worship God. With this being said, though, I also want to leave you with a, a final reminder, namely that, and thankfully, that, that God is gracious. That God is gracious. You know, the parenting mission, it's serious. The stakes are high. But in reality, we, we all fall short. We all fall short. Even in the church, has there ever been a generation of parents that has been completely faithful to this task? We still fall short. And so thank God that he's still gracious with us like he was with Israel time and time again. He knows our weaknesses. We don't want to abuse this grace, but we want to remember it and, and, and rest in it. Thank God for it, that he is a God of grace. This still is the marvel of God's dealings with, with even the church. He's a God of grace. Ultimately, God knows that we're all like sheep, gone astray. We're all like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Israel, they received David, this mighty shepherd king, to lead them in God's ways. But you know what? David fell too. He was a great sinner. He fell way far short. He blew it. And the next generation, they, they blew it as well. And really, that's all of us. That's all of us apart from God. But this is why God sent his own son, Christ, the son of David, the son of God, the chief shepherd of our souls. And he came to lay down his life for these lost and wayward sheep to pay for their sins on the cross and rise that they may have new life, that the sheep could be regathered into one sheepfold to know this God again. See, Christ, he, he's our Savior. He's our shepherd. And it's his grace. That's our only hope for, for any of this, for life, for parenting. We have no hope apart from just God and Christ and, and his grace. And so praise God for the grace that we've received in Christ Jesus. You know, we can feel as parents, who's sufficient for these things? And the answer is, not you, no one. But God tells us, my grace is sufficient for you. And, and that really applies to all, all things in life. Now, his grace is sufficient for us. The grace of God in Christ is our only hope in life and in parenting. Be encouraged in that. Remember this grace. Rest in this grace. Thank God for this grace. And at the end of the day, you're, you're going to have to trust God's grace for your kids too. That they likewise depend just as much on, on his grace. But still, therefore, be faithful by his grace to, to use the word of God. To diligently instruct your children about God and his grace that they may come to know God and his son as their own shepherd of their souls, all to his glory. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are a God of grace, grace and kindness, mercy, patience, love, long-suffering, 
Lord, we, we look at Israel in the Old Testament. We see their waywardness. We, we can scoff. We can, we can be outraged and think, how, how, could, how could anyone do that after seeing the, the mighty works and wonders and miracles of God? Who, who could not just follow and believe and, and obey? Yet, we're no different. We, we, are, we are just the same. And these things have been written for our instruction that we too would not want turn away and forget. That we have the same heart, a wayward heart. We've all been born with that same rebellious heart. But we, we can thank you, Lord, that you sent Christ to find us, to seek and save that which was lost, to die for the lost sheep, and to raise them up. Lord, we pray for any who, who don't know you, who have not turned to Christ as the shepherd of their souls, that they would and, and believe in him and, and seek him to be saved. But now, Lord, we just we continue to pray for, for your grace in life, in all of our tasks to live before you, to follow you, and, and certainly to parent. What a weighty commission you've given us to, to raise up people, a whole generation, in your ways, by your word, instructing them about who you are, what you've done. We can't do this, Lord, not, not without your help, your strength, your power, your grace. We fail, we fall short. You're gracious still. We thank you for that, Lord. But I pray that this word, your word, has, has invigorated us and, and charged us, whether we're parents or grandparents or future parents, to, to be faithful, that we are going to, by your grace, just seek to be faithful, to honor you with this task, to raise them up in the way they should go, that another generation would come to know and, and live for you, to love you and to serve you. We thank you for this grace. We pray for your grace in, in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.